It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello. As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with the greatest gift imaginable. Free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to get eight exclusive craft beers from around the world for free. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. I'm sure you'll have figured it out, but it's best to be clear. And cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that, political party listeners get two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer, and they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. Previous themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom, there's no lock-in, and you can leave at any time. Your first box will be sent to you the very next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme of the box and the individual beers. Plus, you also receive a tasty snack just to top it all off. The box I got has been a godsend to me these last couple of weeks. Some of the beers are incredible. They sent me one called the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Porter, which was unlike anything I'd ever tasted, and a Mango IPA. I mean, I've never tried. I've never tried beer like it, um, and it, it, you can tailor it to your taste. Basically, if you don't like dark beers, you choose the light plan, and obviously, if you like light beers, you choose the light one. It's so easy; even I figured it out. Just go to www.beer52.com/party to get your first case of eight beers for free, and don't forget, political party customers get an extra two unmissable beers for free. That's beer52.com/party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that you're safe and well and sound and that your loved ones are as well. Um, I realise when I say that, that people are having radically different experiences of this crisis, uh, not just in a global sense, but wherever you are listening to this, I'm aware that for some people they might say, well, it was a strange time. For other people, it will be far more profound if people get ill and they have a harrowing experience with it or if a loved one passes away. So I'm just aware that at the start of these shows during this period in our lives, I've started saying, I hope you're well. And I realise that some people listening won't be well. Um, but I just hope, I suppose, that this show, this episode and the others, for an hour or so, just whatever you're doing, that it provides some sort of tonic, whether it's through quality information from brilliant guests or whether it's just 
a different sort of political conversation than the ones we're getting on the, on the TV and on the radio. Um, so we do touch about, uh, we do talk about coronavirus. We do touch on it in this conversation. It's not the sole focus of it. Well, it's not the only focus, rather. Um, but I just hope that conversations like this, even if they are about something that, that can be very troubling, just by the nature of the style of the conversation, that actually there's still a, a form of escapism there. Um, I know that I've been listening to loads more podcasts since the lockdown um, because because of the time, you know, it's a, it's a connection with the outside world. So I just hope that this provides you with the same pleasure that I get from listening to other podcasts. Uh, today's guest is absolutely superb. And I mean, I know I say this a lot, but I wanted to talk to Claire for so much longer. Um, I would have talked to her for hours and hours and hours, but I'm always aware that once it goes over an hour, I'm keeping guests longer than I said I would. And... Um, I would never just want to keep talking for the sake of it. There was no danger of that at all, and I would love to have Claire back on uh, in the future. She's the SDLP MP for Belfast South, and you will not believe, or perhaps you will, how many times I've had to retake this introduction, because for some reason, SDLP MP, I found some form of almost Mensa-level test to get those letters out. Possibly, because where I've got it written down, uh, Claire was also the MLA for Belfast South. So I've got MLA, SDLP, MP, all written down together. Um, maybe it's not that hard at all. Maybe it's just, <laughs> maybe I just need to learn to read. Maybe that's the problem. But this is amazing. So it's not just, I mean, when you think about how this virus and, and, and the politics that come out of it are affecting so many different parts of the world, it was fascinating talking to Jason Leach a couple of episodes ago about um, perhaps the differences in Scotland to the rest of the UK. Even if it's just about demography and geography, so much of our focus, rightly so, in the Brexit debate has been about the border in Ireland, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and the problems that Brexit presents for that part of the world. When you consider now a public health crisis on top of that, where on the island of Ireland you have a different government in the north to the one you have in the Republic, and they may take and have taken different approaches at different times, and whether that's just about how confusing that might be for some people, or the merits of different approaches, it's a fascinating area to explore anyway, but particularly at a time like this. So there's some coronavirus chat in there that is absolutely fascinating. Also, just some really good stuff about the politics of Northern Ireland, the changing politics of Northern Ireland, the changing politics of the Republic of Ireland, um, and how someone with social democratic values is making sense of the political changes north and south of the border. So there's just tons of really brilliant political conversation in here, as well as some coronavirus stuff. But it's just great. And the there's loads about Stormont being up and running, about the different approaches of, of Dublin and London, to use the shorthand, and just the social politics of the island and of Ireland, particularly uh, in the north. Uh, so there's loads. I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. I began by asking Claire about the contrasting approaches of the UK government and the Irish government, and whether she had a view about which one had been more effective. Well, time will tell, I suppose, uh, in terms of which plays out. But it was bizarre, frankly, to see the different strategies. And of course, in Northern Ireland, we're at the intersection of, of both of them. And I remember the morning Leo Varadkar closed the schools. I was still in London coming home. It was the day after budget day. And, you know, I took the tube, took the airport. There was nothing 
unusual. And I came back to Belfast that was already uh, in quite a different place and schools were beginning to voluntarily close to have to take those decisions themselves, even though the decision didn't come for another week officially. Um, Over that weekend, which of course was St. Patrick's weekend, bars were voluntarily closing. People were kind of ahead of it and were following um, Dublin. And I I remember the morning of um, the lockdown more officially being announced in Dublin, getting an email from um, the government going, there'll be a briefing in the tea room if anybody needs to know more about coronavirus. So it was quite bizarre watching it uh, play out. And then actually um, for Northern Ireland's executive and political structures. And of course, bear in mind, they only got back up and running in January after a, a three-year uh, break. Having to take pretty seismic decisions um, in a way that we haven't done before. And obviously everybody was learning on the hoof with um, coronavirus. None of us were experts, but it really challenged the executive and I suppose the lack of maturity in those structures because they'd only been up for a couple of weeks and over the last 20 years that assembly has been down more than it has been up frankly um but, so so it was kind of bizarre watching it all playing out there'll be a day of reckoning uh, for each government in terms of um uh, you know mapping out how their decisions um impacted obviously in public health terms and in the economy but in terms of deaths per capita and ICU capacity and ICU admissions um Ireland seems to be doing a heck of a lot better and in terms of recovery and 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 exit strategies they seem to have a lot more in place um and I know um which I'd prefer to follow just, to, I mean, it, 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 over Brexit, um, there was so much focus on Ireland because of that, that border between the UK and, and the EU on the island of Ireland. And again, issues like this really highlight the, the, the problem of having basically a sort of split Ireland politically in that regard. When you've got some people in parts of Ireland being told to do one thing and other people in parts of Ireland being told to do other things. I mean, it's hard enough anyway, even where you don't have that issue for the public to receive clear messages from the government and from agencies, has it caused confusion for people there? Yeah, it has. Now, I think it's fair to say that the first couple of weeks, the first week, you know, time went really slowly in that period or really fast, but it was it was a real problem because schools, say a school in uh, on one side of the border would be closed and a school a mile away on the other side mightn't be. Um, the fact that the guidance was and still is in the Republic that if you um, have symptoms, you should self-isolate for 14 days and it's seven here and there are tens of thousands of people who live on one side and work on the other side of the border. So yeah, it has it had been problematic and there are still aspects of that. But to be fair, there is now a kind of a memorandum of understanding between the two, uh, between the, the government in London and the government in Dublin and the two chief medical officers. But it does, as you say, highlight the administrative problems of two jurisdictions in one island. It didn't really matter. Um, when we were all in the European Union, because all the regulations were the same and and guidance was the same on, you know, production and standards and labour and all those kinds of things. Um, But yeah, this this kind of lays it out pretty, pretty sharply uh, why you need to have synchronisation, particularly, I mean, it is, and that's not a political thing. If you look at New Zealand, for example, it's also doing really well because 
it is an island and there are advantages to that, particularly when large parts of it are fairly rural and have a diff- different demographic um, to the areas in, in Britain and elsewhere that are most affected. Well, I was going to ask you about that later on, but do you think there are specific geographic and demographic factors as to why the, 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 the sort of infection rate per head is so much lower in Ireland than it is in Britain? Yeah, there there are actually. I mean, some of them certainly. And again, I'm kind of looking at Northern Ireland as well. One, um, and we're actually faring kind of even better than both. Um, it's all the things that I complain about about Northern Ireland that have been an advantage. The fact that we have crap public transport, for example. So if somebody was infected on the tube, you know, you can infect potentially dozens and hundreds of people we don't have uh, that many we don't have very many trains so thankfully that little um, death shuttle wasn't available but the yes I mean just the, the connectivity um, and Dublin would have similar to, to London in that you would have you know plane after plane coming in from affected areas uh, whereas uh, in Belfast airport you know you might have a couple of flights from Italy per week you know there's no direct link with China for example at the early phases um, of it so yeah, I mean there there are demographic differences. Um, the population, which surprised me actually, I didn't know this, um, is considerably younger in uh, in in Ireland, in the island of Ireland, or at least in that much older category. There are um, there are more in Britain than there are here. But I suppose it's mainly connectivity and 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 rurality, and I suppose some of the kind of community uh, structures that give leadership that people listen to really quickly, like. The GAA, the you know the Gaelic Athletic Association, a, a really pretty big community player in in large parts of Ireland, north and south. They acted really quickly, and, and on about the thirteenth of March, they cancelled all activity, training, matches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we had sort of nodes like that that were promoting the, the messaging, um, you know, ahead of governments. Uh, you mentioned Stormont getting up and running again, which has been so important. And as you say, in the last twenty years, it's been. Uh, <laughs> not up and running as much as it you know it's been closed more than it's been open sadly um how important has that been i mean obviously the timing of it really could prove to be crucial that it was up and running before this crisis really hit but how was important is it for the people of northern ireland to see that stormont is obviously it's during a crisis but that it is functioning again at some level yeah so when it when it got back up in in kind of the second week in january it was really important because we we kind of knew at that point Brexit was definitely happening. Um, even before, you know, any of us had heard of coronavirus, we were really acutely aware of issues in the health sector that needed dealt with. So I think while people weren't, you know, dancing in the street about, you know, <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers that they've that that, you know, these guys at Stormont have finally parked their self-interest and got back into government. They there was some relief because, you know, devolution offers some protection because a lot of policies with the best will in the world and there isn't always the best will mm. things that might be suitable um in in say for example parts of england just aren't here because of some of those differences um that we've just spoken about so yeah people people were kind of relieved rather than rejoicing um uh because there was a lot to do and and all of the three years the last three years um, that we didn't have any executive, everything slipped, you know, yeah. decisions backed up in education, in health, in transport, and just, you know, issuing capital and so on. And you could really see that degradation in, in public services. So people were like, come on, somebody needs to be in charge. That first few days 
um, DUP and the Sinn, and Sinn Féin, the two large parties who, who you know, hold kind of nine out of 12 of the executive seats, had a big split over, um, I won't go into, bore you with the oh, details. The scheme. Well, yes, that big split. Um, yes, well, I'm sure we'll come on to that one. But um, no, over the closure of the schools, they all agreed a position on the Thursday night and then one of them split off on the Friday morning. And I think everybody went, oh my God, we just don't have the time for you to have one of your rows. You know, this is too serious. We're busy. Stop having a squabble over this. So that shook people's confidence. But to be fair, um, they're you know they're they're kind of trying to work it out, and I think people are glad that somebody's there to make those um, decisions in uh, in the health service and so on. But it's it's really crucially uh, important, and actually it's going to become more pertinent as we try to get into the recovery phase. Uh, if, if Dublin and London have such dramatically different strategies, like the fact that Dublin don't, uh, London don't seem to be following the tracing and testing strategy, which is terrifying, actually, um, then I suspect all the arguments that we had on the way into the crisis we're going to have on the way out as well. And just to be clear on the split between the DUP and Sinn Féin on that issue, it was that the DUP were were closer in line with with, with the London view of, of slowly closing things and Sinn Féin wanted to close schools and businesses quicker. Yeah, that's 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 more or less it. And then it kind of got imbued with two things. One, just the kind of collective responsibility uh, piece that they had all decided together on the Thursday night and all the executive ministers from all the parties went out and did a presser about how they were going to um, delay it. And then one of them went off. I suppose when you get into the, the technical details, um, Northern Ireland was quite far, well, not quite far, but a week or two behind both London and Dublin strategically. So, you know, it was a kind of a, at what point in our strategy are we making this leap? I personally, you know, for, for what it was worth, you know, the, the, the WHO were really clear. They say, if you wait to be right, you, you're, you're going to be too slow. You need to, you know, go hard quickly. And I think that's what Bradker has done. And I think it has paid off. In, in, um, but there were always things to weigh up, you know, uh, putting things in place around particularly vulnerable communities and kids and free school meals and many, many things that had to be done before you, you, you start to shut down the economy. Also, we couldn't we couldn't unilaterally shut it down. None of the job retention schemes and all that stuff hadn't been announced from London. So we would have kind of I mean, we don't have a lot of those financial levers. So I suppose some of it was around Northern Ireland issuing that guidance without the financial safety net was kind of out on the limb. But yeah, that's that's broadly. It was about the speed of the shutdown. If we were being charitable to the DUP and Sinn Féin. They found themselves in this situation where Stormont's back up and running, then a global crisis hits. Not, you know, people might, people will get frustrated with the governments in Dublin and London and all around the world because they fear that they were, you know, too slow or they're not going fast enough or they're being too harsh or yeah. whatever. You know, <laughs> the problems people always have with their government, with their governments. Um, the, the DUP and Sinn Fein do find themselves in a unique situation, don't they? Where all of a sudden they're thrust back into power, in effect, with people that they really disagree with. And, and that is another layer of politics they've got to deal with that, that Leah Varadkar and Boris Johnson didn't. Totally. And I mean, if you'd if we'd been having this conversation about, you know, another run of the mill um, emergency six months ago, I would have really been sticking the boot in, quite frankly, uh, and they would have deserved it. But as I say, we don't have time for psychodrama and we don't really have time for finger pointing. I could have given you a version of that story that kind of 
you know, set out at great length how, how wrong both of them were. Um, but yeah, it is. And it underlines two things that the, some of the, the flaws in, in our in our governance structures. And, and that's a kind of a story for another day. But basically, while a lot of uh, countries and regions have coalition governments, generally it's by agreement. You know, well, we think this and you think this. So we can kind of cobble together a program for government here you get into government on by law on the basis of, of the number of seats that you have. So there isn't the same incentive to compromise. They don't have to go, well, look, what can we work out together on our vision on education or our economic strategies? There's no one, you know, you get in if you get your number of seats. So they don't have to try and um, they don't have to try and make their stuff palatable to each other. And you can have, well, we're going to lead this part of the population and we're going to lead that. And then each of the department departments work in silos even worse than in a normal government but then at the same time I mean people like me who've said that look we're all the same here you know your our interests are the same and the Good Friday Agreement was about working on common interests and through that work in the common ground realizing that our interests are the same and it, it underlined more acutely than anything you know we all need toilet roll you know we all uh we all have uh the same vulnerability to this disease all of that kind of thing so it it's it, it did. It, it, I, I totally get the additional challenges. They're working together because the law tells them they must work together rather than any sense of shared purpose. And to be fair, they are like trying to keep the show on the road now and doing joint press conferences and all that kind of stuff. And and I have certainly um, pulled my punches for the last month and will continue to because nobody has time. It's, you know, the model has so many strengths and weaknesses, given the unique context of, of, of politics in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. But can you imagine a time in the near future, maybe in the middle distance, where that model changes and you don't have that effectively enforced power sharing model? Yeah, I can actually. Um, it was two years ago was the 20th anniversary uh, uh, of the Good Friday Agreement being signed. No. Where are we? Yeah, two years ago. And that would have been the obvious time to trigger um, a review of the structures. And that's allowed for the Good Friday Agreement. I don't think um, well-intentioned when it was written, you know, it was a, a piece of genius when it was written. But I don't know that they would have imagined that 20 years on, we'd still be clinging to those structures. Of course, at that time, we were in the middle of Brexit. And, and the Good Friday Agreement has absolutely been our lifeboat in Brexit. And because of it, we couldn't have the hard Brexit that um, many in the UK government wanted to, to, to force. You know, um, the Good Friday Agreement was a, a standing international treaty that they couldn't just cast aside, although they tried. But um, so, so yeah, I can, uh, and, and, and we do need, we need to see an alternative in some ways. It locks in some of the sectarianism. If you have to identify primarily as a unionist or nationalist and some of your votes are weighted on that basis, then in some ways people only think in those tracks. And there are a growing number of people who don't primarily identify in that way. And I, I would actually include myself in it. I mean, I'm I'm Irish. I believe that Irish unity is sensible, but I, you know, it's not my only political identifier. Um, and I don't identify, I wouldn't identify as nationalist. If I if I lived and was politically active in any other country, and I think there are a lot of people like that who who do have a view, but they don't want to start and end every conversation. Um, and and I think yeah, I think um, it, we 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 sh we should change those structures. And I think the mandatory nature of coalition is part of the problem. That that disincentive to compromise that the that the big parties have, who are only really speaking to one strand of opinion. Has Brexit, and it's one of the benefits of this 
crisis has been that we've talked about Brexit a bit less, but has Brexit reignited that, that nationalist unionist divide? It felt like it was not quickly eroding, but voting behaviour was starting to change and people were starting to, you know, that was those old communities were starting to break down in terms of the way that voters, particularly perhaps newer, younger generations. Has Brexit perhaps reaffirmed that divide? It totally has. And that's the really tragic thing about it. And I mean, you know, I talk a lot about the Good Friday Agreement, which was basically um, an agreement to stop talk, to find a solution that meant we had to, you know, we didn't talk so much about the identity thing, whether you were Irish or British, whether you looked to London or Dublin. We didn't have to talk about borders. We didn't have to talk about sovereignty. And then Brexit meant that we had nothing else to talk about. We just, it inserted all of those really sharp dividing conversations back into our everyday discourse so it it absolutely inflamed all of those um things that we we tried to kind of manage out they were never going to go away but as i say um when when there were no issues about goods or people moving either you know north south on the island or east west between Ireland and Britain then we didn't have to think about them um so that was that was the really worrying thing about it and i suppose i mean even as I say, somebody like myself who 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 has always grown up as a as a nationalist, as an Irish identifying person who, you know, believed in Irish unity but was content to prioritize things like the economy and reconciliation. And while I was in a UK that was fairly outward looking and, and even social democratic and we were all in the EU, it didn't really matter that much to me. It wasn't, you know, God I have to get Irish unity tomorrow. It wasn't a real driver because we could all be who we wanted to be. My next door neighbor could feel British and Northern Irish and I could feel Irish and Northern Irish and for many of us that was kind of the agreed Ireland and we were in a we were in a good place um but I suppose it it laid out the imbalance the fact that those views and our views meant so little um and I suppose the lack of understanding of the UK government of of this particular challenges that we faced and and some of the you know people who were just swearing blind that there would be no issue on the border and and those you know people who lived on the border knew that there certainly would be an issue and people were told oh you know there's, there was no such thing as a hard border in the past and people were like oh, here's some photographs and here's some videos and this is the fence that used to cut through my farm and, and all of those things so um yeah it's totally it's totally opened up the conversation but it's also fair to say that it's shown how you don't do constitutional change and those of us who do aspire to Irish unity shown that you can't just go well, we've got this big idea let's vote on it and then we'll figure out the details because yes. people have a right to you know, ask about what it'll mean for their material, um, you know, well-being and, and and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's totally, it's totally um, a, an own goal for those people who didn't want to have the conversation. Uh, if Brexit was divisive, there's something about this crisis that, that is quite unifying, that people yeah. are putting aside not just political differences, but as a, not even just a, 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 an Irish, UK, British level, yeah. but globally, yeah, the the whole planet now has a sort of singular purpose and a, and a big priority. That could have political. I mean, what what is the potential political implication of that on the island of Ireland? I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of Scottish independence. That in a way, it brings people together and it might make Scottish independence harder. But what would the implication be for the politics of Northern Ireland and the island of, end of Ireland potentially? Well- yeah, I mean, you're you're so right, and that's been the really. I mean, the two fascinating things are one, how how 
in most cases, the kind of global community have cooperated. And, and I see, I just listened to the press conference there. We just, you know, the UK has just got PPE from, from Burma and, you know, the kind of the flow of, of, of goods and so on, obviously with exceptions like Trump. But um, and then at a community level, the way it really has brought out the best in some people, it really the things that people are doing um, are incredible. But but yeah, do, do you mean in terms of how it's changed? You know, people are less about point scoring. Is that what you mean, well, or I do guess, you mean about the relationships between the islands and stuff? Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking: would it make a United Island more likely or less likely? Would it be more likely to increase support for the union in Northern Ireland, or, or more likely to, okay. to decrease? Well, what are the kind of flow charts? Yeah. I mean, in in practical terms, it actually became a hashtag at the time. Listen to Leo, you know, for Leo Varadkar, <laughs> who, 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 who I have to say has played a blinder in all of this. And, you know, whenever some of the politicians who are doing the kind of press conference and they're trying to do father of the nation and it's really cringe and you're like, just tell us the statistics and go, yes. please. Um, but he he has managed that. And I think partly he's a, he's a medical doctor himself and, and all his, his partner and his sisters and all are doctors so he, you know he clearly has an empathy with those on the front line and has done that thing where he's honest with people about the hard decisions rather than telling people it'll all blow over you know he set out very early what we were facing into so yeah I think a lot of people is a little bit like Brexit you know people who um, you know, legitimately, you know, were unionists or brought up in that tradition and, you know, believed in in the UK. And by the way, I personally, it's not it's not a view that I share, but I think it's perfectly rational, perfectly rational for people to have that view. But I think over Brexit, a lot of people were like, mm, but the strategy Dublin has is a lot more sensible and it seems to be a lot more in tune with my economic interests. And I think the same will and is happening um, with the uh, with the coronavirus response, I think, you know, as I say, that that kind of reckoning on who was right and who was too slow, etc., will come. It will come. Uh, that's not to say we can't ask questions now. But, yeah, I think a lot of people will will look at the, the leadership and the responsiveness from Dublin and say, I would like a piece of that. And what about the politics in Ireland at the moment? Because we're still in a situation where... Leo Varadkar is, is the Taoiseach, but he's trying to get a coalition together between uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who are the two great rivals of, of, of Irish politics in the South, uh, perhaps a grand coalition with the Greens. I mean, in your view, is that the best available option for Ireland? Yeah, I mean, that's it actually such a complex situation and so bizarre that's happening now that actually Leo Varadkar just lost the election in, in, yeah. in, in February. Um, so... Uh, like it's 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 yeah it's interesting and time will tell again what kind of coalition does come together no i don't think it's actually the ideal scenario but they're not coming down with options it's like the worst kind of fox and grain and chicken puzzle you know such and such can't be yeah. such and doesn't want to cross the river with you know so in terms of people who will and won't um work with each other um and i suppose just the need to find a stable set of numbers so um you know no i i i I don't know that it's necessarily in the long-term interest um, for that particular set of actors working together, but I think it's the best option probably on the table at the moment on the basis that you can't just have um, another election. And while I think their kind of political cultures are different, you're right to say that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on policy terms are are, are quite um, similar. I, I guess the message of February's election 
um, and the public did send a really strong message about issues around housing and health. I, I actually think, to be fair, it will probably those the leadership of those parties will have taken it on. And I get I hope that they will um, perform um, in a more social democratic fashion, although, you know, everything is everything's up in the air on a lot of things. I mean, um, Fine Gael performed magnificently on Brexit as well. And there wasn't. Um, but I suppose on the domestic economic front, um, you know, they 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 are kind of fiscally conservative. And um, some of that will will bear fruit. The fact that they, you know, the, the, the public finances weren't in bad shape before this. But, you know, the word the, the rules of capitalism are being rewritten across the world and in every country. So we're in a completely different place in terms of you know how we finance things and 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 how we finance people. Um, so I suppose I suppose stability is what any country needs at the moment. And I guess yeah, that's the most stable option on the table. And they both seem keen to keep Sinn Fein out of government. Are they right to to sort of share that purpose? Um. So. Uh, I, I think in in a lot of ways, I think Sinn Féin got the, the mandate. I didn't I didn't like that. Um, they got, and I suppose they will always be able to play the coming man. Oh well, if we had been in government, and if we had been, I I think I think the parties were right to give Sinn Féin space as the the largest party. And just for reference, I think they came in at like. 35, 34, and 32 seats or something. And all, although Sinn Féin got the highest number of votes, um, like 25% of the vote. So I think the parties were right to give Sinn Féin space to try and form their government, which they were unable to do. Um, I, I I think every party's entitled to kind of have their red lines. Um, and I don't blame them. Sinn Féin aren't the most collegiate uh, party. As, as I say, everybody who's worked with them in government in Northern Ireland knows you just... You know they'll 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 always protect their own party narrative, regardless of what that means for collective responsibility and what, regardless of what that means for good governance. Um, so I I don't think it's a I don't think it's a great look. Um, though I suppose uh, people people who vote for those part for a party that is kind of excluded in that way will say, well, that means you're excluding me and my vote. Um, but ultimately. Um, they give, yeah, if Sinn Féin were unable to, to create um, a, a, a coalition government. I think even there were some talks of like a, you know, a government of unity or whatever over coronavirus. And I think maybe given some space on that. But it's it's for the voters to decide. I, I've mixed feelings on it. But again, we, we're in a mandatory coalition. You don't you don't get to decide who's in with you. We're all we're all in it together. Yeah, I suppose in a way there's a there's a benefit to having that decision taken out of your hands, perhaps. But um. What was the reason, do you think, for this for the Sinn Féin surge? They outperformed their last election results uh, so significantly. Um, so it's a number of things. I mean, I suppose what's even more dramatic is they got tanked in the May council elections. I mean, yes. I think they lost half of their seats and so on, and um, they had quite a substantial drop here um in in the northern elections in in uh, in december in the westminster election so some of it is uh, discipline message funding you know they are if wherever you are in europe they're they're a, a model of how you run a political party in terms of you know how you just you know hammer hone your message and they are i think i think this is fairly well established easily the richest political party in these islands in terms of you know per vote or per membership or whatever they, they have 
quite a diverse um, set of income sources. Um, but uh, they, uh, so some some of it is is about how they deliver um, their message and 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 their their strategy. Some of it, Matt, is catching the wave. You know, people. Yeah. Um, were so the Irish government were very very focused and all the bandwidth was on Brexit for the last few years and and I think they didn't make the progress in in housing in particular that they needed to and, and the housing crisis was pretty massive so we're talking about obviously you know homelessness in the way that people understand it in terms of street sleepers uh, but and, and kind of overcrowding but huge issues around um, you know, young people who who in another country would be able to buy, uh, being unable to, um, huge issues around the quality of housing that were there. And I don't, and I think I suspect the government would agree, they probably didn't act on it um, quickly enough. And I suppose some of the housing that's going to come through for the next few years will tell a different story. But I think people were um, in a place that they didn't feel that there was enough movement. They felt that Ireland had recovered post the financial crisis and they weren't necessarily feeling it in their pockets. But some of it's it's just a mood. Sometimes you look at elections and you go, what was that about? I mean, bear in mind that in December, Tories won a pretty big majority and I can't explain that one either. Well, I I think Jeremy Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party may have uh, played a significant yeah, role. Fair, in, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, well, you're, you're, you're right. Some no. a big part of it though is um, people looking at the alternatives. People, people mm. going, eh. and in some ways, people going, "Well, I'll give this one a try." And I guess the the Tories also that what I was talking about about being resourced and message discipline and simplicity of message, even if it was the right, you know, even if the message was meaningful, is is a, is a, is a, is a question for another day but um you know they presented it coherently and and sometimes people want to back a winner and i suppose if you're living in ireland and the two major players are both on the center right and you're looking for a progressive yeah. or left-wing <laughs> alternative Sinn Féin are probably the biggest brand in town but why don't you think the labor party in ireland has been able to have a a, a breakthrough that that you would almost expect if, if we're talking about less sectarian times and people looking for left-wing alternatives why hasn't the totally. Labour Party been that voice? Yeah, I, and actually at a time it looked, you know, a month or two out from the election that it might be the Green Party might, uh, as I say, I use that phrase to catch the wave and I don't mean to be dismissive, but sometimes you can just, there's a public mood and you can tap into it. So I, I mean, I, I think for the Labour Party and for the Green Party, who are actually kind of a bigger player in in in, in Dublin now, um, I suppose it was that perception, we tried all of you, you know, uh, because government is always by coalition in Ireland because it's, God, it's been decades since anybody's had an outright majority we have a PR voting system etc etc um so I, I I honestly think of well we tried every one of you uh, and you're the only Sinn Féin we're the only one left untried which is why I have reservations about um a, a government you know albeit they got 25% of the vote 75% of the people didn't vote for them but that's why I have reservations about them not being in the government resulting from that election because again in the next election you know, the decisions won't all be right. There's going to be really tough stuff over the next couple of years post-coronavirus, and they will still be the only ones that haven't been tried and able to promise the the earth, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Labour... Um, which would obviously be my my own natural political home in the south, um, are still suffering the effects of going into government, and um, with with Fine Gael, um, in the years after the crisis. It's my view that they had to and they needed to. Your job in politics isn't 
just to protect your seat and protect your vote and protect your PR. It's to rule, it's not to, it's to govern on behalf of people and it's to make decisions on behalf of people and to mitigate the worst um, impact of those economic decisions. But um, uh, so I, I don't I don't believe Labour had any choice. They had to go into that government. They probably could have um, got a little bit more out of it and maybe had a better comms strategy. But I, I think that's why Sinn Féin got, it, it, it was a clarity of messaging um, tapping into the public mood and the fact that they were the only ones that hadn't had a turn. The SDLP uh, has a partnership, a relationship with Fianna Fáil, um, something that uh, you resigned the whip over in the in the Assembly and stood down as the Brexit spokesperson uh, for the SDLP. Um, I mean, those sort of decisions are understandable, but they cause tensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, have, uh, have your relationships recovered within the party since? Well, you know, that decision, my, my view has always been since the beginning of time that um, the SDLP is kind of the common ground in Irish politics, particularly as regards, you know, reconciliation and reunification and all that. And I think that's the best strategy that you're not, you have good relationships with every party, whether they're in government or otherwise. Um, and that remains my view. Um, so I didn't support a kind of an exclusive partnership with one party and it's fair to say that that party wouldn't have been my my natural you know they wouldn't even get my second preference to, to be fair and, and there are really honorable people in it so um I, I i haven't changed my view on that um and when it came to the election in december you know i've i've always a good relate you know and i'm 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 still close friends with colin eastwood the SDLP leader and, and nicola mal the deputy leader and, and we were all very honest with each other um about you know where we were on that and that I hadn't changed my mind. We knew that Brexit was um, undoubtedly the biggest challenge and way bigger um, than party politics. And the campaign I ran in that election was about working with, you know, all parties. I was endorsed by the Green Party and activists from a number of political parties in the North and all of the political parties in the South, from uh, Labour, from Fianna Fáil, from Fine Gael, from the Green Party, from the Sock Dems, you know, and, and, that, and that paid off. Those are my politics. It's about the broadest possible coalition. You and Colm Eastwood obviously elected in December uh, to, the, uh, to the Westminster Parliament. I mean, what a surreal start to your life as a member of the... UK Parliament to be basically elected in this weird election that happens in December, a good result for the SDLP, and then basically from the moment you're sworn in, an international crisis hits. I mean, how much time have you been able to even spend in in Westminster? Yeah, that was bizarre because we had we had kind of January and February, but you're just you're actually just finding your feet and and speaking personally, I hadn't I I hadn't got staff in place, I hadn't done the recruitment, and I wanted to do it properly. And you know, so my kind of office manager, main advisor, started on the Monday, the 9th of March, and I remember going, I can finally start to enjoy this now. You know, I'm not basically. <laughs> Because for the for January and February, I woke up at seven o'clock in the morning. I answered emails until about midnight. That's kind of all I did, you know. Yeah. Uh, just staying on top of things. And I remember thinking, I think I'm gonna enjoy, you know, kind of seeing what this has to offer, and 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 I, I suppose pursuing ideas. And and you're right, we're now moving to. Um, uh, an online uh, parliament in in some ways with the best will in the world I, I can't imagine being back in London this side of the summer I just don't think um, that you know the public health guidance would support me doing something like that so yeah it it, it, it is weird as we were as I say just finding our feet luckily I suppose to have had that couple of months to make some contacts otherwise uh, and to sort of because there are 
you know, MPs and other parties that you can kind of go, is this, you know, sort of sense check and, and a, a sort of a procedural check on things. Um, but I mean, it, it, it just radically changes what you're there to do. I mean, I, both Colm and I were elected on a really strong results around uh, limiting the damage of Brexit. Uh, I, I kind of miss when Brexit was the most complex problem that we had, um, and it's still, by the way, it's still a problem. I mean, a kind yeah. of a potential crash in in the in in the new year is still, I mean, disaster upon disaster. But in terms of the economic recovery and just the global changes and trends and what this means for every aspect of our lives, politically, socially, economically, it completely changes the project. It probably completely changes the coalition of MPs that uh, are going to be needing to pull together. So we're lucky that we had that chance to kind of, um, you know, m- make those initial contacts. But yeah, it's, it's a really weird time to be in this in this role. You've obviously sat in a number of political institutions at the council and the assembly and now uh, in the Westminster Parliament. And I know you've probably not set foot in it that many times since you got elected, but a lot of new MPs say it can be quite an intimidating place. I mean, Stormont itself obviously is imposing on the hill, a beautiful interior. I mean, do you feel when you set foot inside Parliament, is it is it overwhelming to be a new MP there or does it really not make a huge difference, the sort of uh, the vessel that you're stood in? No, it, 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 no, it was. It was overwhelming. And, and it's fair to say I've, I've been in Westminster about twice in a, in a previous job, not, not politically. I have to confess I was not and I'm still not a, a, like a parliament TV watcher. So there was a lot about the processes and the procedures and the kind of behaviour that I was I was I was blind on, you know, so um like on the second day, and I'm actually really embarrassed about this, but I, I didn't realise you could enter, I've got a terrible sense of direction, but I'd entered behind the speaker's chair. So I didn't realise this. So the chamber was laid out in exact, and I actually went, oh, they must swap places for some reason, because then they have all these funny <laughs> like during the prayers you turn your back which it was bizarre but so I genuinely and I walked up and I nearly sat down beside you know Stephen Crabb that's yeah. MP. I yeah, just was like minister. so bizarre that they must swap them over and then I kind of went and realized so things like things like that and people were really in all you know in all the kind of uh, all the staff and uh, other MPs people were really welcoming and explaining but yeah I mean it is it is um it is definitely it's on a bigger scale, and I suppose it's more familiar to you in some ways than um, than other parliaments. We we were lucky, Colm and I both, you know, haven't been in the assembly. Bear in mind, we were on suspension for three years, so I was an MLA for four years. Only nine months of those was I actually a sitting parliamentarian. So of course, um, you keep getting elected to places that keep I, getting suspended. I, possibly me I might be a jinx I might be a jinx everything was going okay till till I got elected so um so yeah I mean it is it is it whether or not and obviously there's a different dimension being I suppose a nationalist who politically doesn't really want to be part of the um you know the configuration of countries that elects people to that parliament but I'm you know I'm very much a believer in you kind of do what you can where you can and nothing about us without us you know uh, uh, Westminster still has major control over many aspects of our life and it, it was a real problem over the last few years that kind of the moderate centre in Northern Ireland um, wasn't represented particularly in the Brexit um, debate so you know we kind of had a you know a lot to do to rebuild that voice. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I was going to ask about that 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 feeling of you know for for so many politicians getting elected to Westminster will be the pinnacle of their career and rightly so and it's a big deal and you're representing people and all the rest of it but they've always seen their ambition channeled through that institution whereas I suppose for members of the SNP and for uh, for parties like yourself you kind of want to be there while it has powers over the territory but ultimately you want to not be having to go there to represent people. There must be so many mixed emotions about getting elected there. Yeah, I mean, I must say, and there was a whole big um, thing, ever, you know, obviously you'll be aware that, say, for example, Sinn Féin don't take their seats because they won't make the oath to the Queen. And kind of, it was a configuration of words. And I know I said it and then added a bit about my actual political values. And it, it wouldn't stop me. It wouldn't stop me doing my job in the same way there's administrative hurdles, you know, like, oh, don't you know, in, in any job when you're changing, there's procedural stuff, you know, that I have to do this, um, that, that you have to get to. I suppose, I mean, genuinely, my political lodestar is the Good Friday Agreement, and I won't get too much into the details, but at its core, that is about three sets of relationships. It's about relationships within Northern Ireland, relationships on the island of Ireland, north-south, and relationships between Britain and Ireland east west right and it's like a puzzle you can't and, and again this particular crisis underlines it you can't really make progress unless all three of those sets of relationships are working so i must say the kind of british irish dimension is a very important part of my politics and whatever happens constitutionally in the next 5 10 20 50 years we will always be next door neighbors we will always have there will always be many tens and hundreds of thousands of Irish people living in Britain and British people living in Ireland. So I think we'll always have that connection. I must say, so I don't, it's not, I don't go in every day going, count the days, leg it out again in, in that <laughs> sort of, in, in, that, in that sort of way. And I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up in, born in the Republic of Ireland, but I grew up in, in, in Northern Ireland. There's aspects of, there's big aspects of the UK and, and Britain that are a big part of my identity, not least, you know, our current, the, the National Health Service, you know, things like that, that are, that are a big part of my life. Um, that, uh, yeah, so that the Westminster looks after. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, but no, I don't sit there going, yeah, it's, it's just, I'm not, I'm not wired that way. I'm just there to do a job, kind of. There are parts of, I don't maybe not the system, but maybe it is the system. There are parts of the system that I think are slightly provocative. Um, and I just wonder if, so for instance, I mean, I would count myself as a Republican, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to start a revolution anytime soon. And I'm around the centre and it's probably one of People the most... People get effing... hurt in revolutions. That's what I always get. Well, exactly. About. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, and, and it, you know, and it's not the biggest issue. But But that said, I think it is provocative to ask people to swear an allegiance to the Queen and not necessarily just the country. And I I understand why Labour MPs don't feel comfortable doing that, 
why SNP members of Parliament don't feel comfortable, some of them. And I would understand why, with your politics, mm-hmm. with where you come from. I mean, it, I, I, I find that, I, I don't know, I've got, uh, you know, my, my, my daddy's Irish, so maybe I'm slightly more attuned yeah. to those sorts of things. But I still think it's provocative. And I still think, just as you can, you know, swear on different books in court, Really, there ought to be a different oath that doesn't involve a symbol that is so uh, divisive in, in in parts of uh, the, the, the point. The point I made. The point I made, and I wrote to the speaker on it. The point I made is that the first words out of my mouth in that chamber weren't true. The first thing I said in there on your first day, because you don't you don't go anywhere till you do your oath. Um, it was it, it was whatever it is. Like, and and I like I've 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 met the Queen. I have the greatest respect uh, for, uh, and I know she's important to a lot of my constituents. So I definitely didn't want to be disrespectful either. But it isn't true for me. I don't pledge allegiance to the Queen, and certainly not her heirs and successors. Let me tell you um even even more so so i think it's the principle that it you start your parliamentary career with a lie effectively that i find quite offensive and that there are other things that you can give a commitment to you give the example that people yeah i can swear in court on a different bible but you can say what's true to you or you could do a pledge of service to your constituents or you could do a pledge of you know common endeavor and all of the services that we look after um so yeah it's 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 archaic now that's not to say for people who want to take it and there's clearly mps that would take great pride and joy in it and i definitely wouldn't want to take that away from them by scrapping it but i i think yeah there should be a menu of options so in in my case as i say and again I was told you'd be queuing for two hours. So I joined that queue going, right, I think now what I'm going to say. What am I going to say here? This is pretty. And there was some reason there was nobody in the queue. So I got up in about eight minutes, garbled out, garbled (laughs) out. Well, this is who I am and what I'm about. And then I had to type out a phone uh, or a letter to the speaker on my phone and text it up to my friend who works for a different party. Print this out to me. I just told the speaker I have a letter for him. And, uh, you know, it wasn't. So it wasn't the most strategic decision. But that's because it wasn't the thing. It wasn't the thing I was worried about during the campaign, you know, how, how you handle procedural things like that. But it is, it's archaic and it should be changed. And I think there would be um, fairly broad support for that. And it should be there for those people who want it and for whom it's meaningful. The, the letter you wrote to the speaker, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something like a respectful protest. That might be the phrase. I can't, I, there yeah, was a particular yeah. thing. I mean, which is a great way to kind of deal with it. Um are you always mindful and and is this and you know from some distance it it would be easy to say well you know in communities like some of the communities you get in northern ireland you know if you swear allegiance to the queen then one half are going to be annoyed with you and if you don't register the process protest another half are going to be annoyed with you i mean it would be easy to look at northern ireland sometimes from a distance and think you're constantly in danger of offending people that can't be true you know, there, there must be people that are far more relaxed about these things yeah, than the black and white we sometimes see. Are. I could go, well, Matt, uh, actually, there's 800 years of uh, update I've got to give you on this. No, but I mean, there's <laughs> always been, what one, I come from the SDLP that has a strong, um, you know, since its foundations, we had MPs and great MPs and people like John Hume and Seamus Mallon, who, again, like me, that, you know, they weren't going to stop. The pledge wasn't something they relished, but they weren't going to stop it um, fighting, you know, prevent them from fighting for for improving people's lives. I, I'm in a, I mean, I've always tried to just, as I say, go go with your gut and pay a straight bat and not, because I'm yeah. not deeply entrenched in either. And I do tend to see um, different perspectives. I grew up in the most integrated neighbourhood in Northern Ireland, and um, that has been a real advantage. And my voter base very substantially 
is not, you know, sheep or goat. You know, it's it's a mixture of people. It's it's nationalists and unionists and um and and neither's. Um, so it's important to me that I don't, um, you know, I don't kind of fall into um in, into into one uh, category. That's not to say, and I think this is a crucial misunderstanding that you know it's sectarian to be a nationalist or sectarian to be a unionist it isn't and I want to kind of make that clear I have strong views on the constitutional issues some of my best friends have strong views in a different way it doesn't mean that you can't have a view it's it's just it's just how we manage it and again the Good Friday Agreement is that neat little magic eye framework to do all that so that everybody's aspiration can be respected so it's not saying you all have to have a lobotomy and not have a view on kind of what country you want to live in but it's it's about being respectful of other people so for me to say you know uh, and, and it, it, it just wasn't true for me but for me to kind of go in and trash the pledge to the queen would have been completely inappropriate and completely insensitive to the thousands of people who voted for me who who, who are unionists and for whom the queen is their head you know the head of state and 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 I didn't want to disrespect that so many political issues effectively get get characterised and mischaracterised. Whether it's and I'm in danger, I definitely do it over Brexit sometimes about hardline Brexiteers, and it's easy to kind of joke about them, you know, saluting the Queen every morning and having model Spitfires and all the rest of it. And, and this happens the world over. But it must be frustrating when Northern Ireland is often seen as the epicentre of, particularly in terms of the British Isles and Ireland when it comes to issues of identity and whenever it's on mm. the news, you know, it's pictures of orange marches and things, and and that. Those symbols of identity can't, you know, they're important to some people, but on the whole, most people aren't walking around Northern Ireland in a bowler hat with an orange sash. You know, that's just not, you know, these are yeah. quite rarefied elements of these, of these movements and values. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really, it's a really good point. And like I say, people can, you know, you can kind of think two things at the same time, you know, you can be, you know, an orange man who doesn't hate Catholics and nationalists, I suppose, and you can be, you know, a strong Sinn Féin supporter who has no ill will towards your towards your 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 neighbours or whatever. So, but we do have we can sectarianize anything. Like I say, mm. we we had a good old crack at sectarianizing the coronavirus. You know, you can have the most benign and unrelated debate, and we will find a way to make it green and orange. And I I find that tragic and really really frustrating but yes I don't know that we've always projected our best um face politically and and I think there are very many people who who will associate Northern Ireland with tension row people you know who would go out of their way to take offense as as the phrase would go um and I suppose disagreeableness and it isn't you're right it isn't true most people here are actually you know good fun and and it is a great place to live and Belfast is a brilliant city once this is all over people should come and visit it it's really it's really good fun and and as I say like most places people are ahead of the politicians but and I suppose yes. even for you know somebody like me who 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 doesn't and wouldn't vote for the for the for the parties um you know the DUP and Sinn Féin there are decent people within those parties and there are people that I can understand why people want to vote for them so but yeah we do we we kind of we've got a really reductivist way of looking at everything and immediately boiling it down to what is that is it nationalist or unionist and and it has to be said the two big parties are very adept at doing that they know that that's the way to sort of pickle their their internal rivals is by is by making it really sectarian and those of us more in the center the SDLP the also unionist the alliance party the greens who will try and give a more nuanced view and one that reflects the breadth of opinion find that we're always given big long wordy answers when they you know the other two can go 
mad about United Ireland, about the Union, you know, and, and the rest of us were trying to explain the shades of grey that life are actually about. Yeah, I mean, it's I've been to Belfast numerous times. I'm very lucky to perform there. And particularly the last time I was there, I, I mean, I'm always ultra aware that I'm English and, you know, you, you never want to offend anyone. Or certainly I don't. Anyway, I'm not one of those sorts of comedians, but you want to get the language absolutely right. But absolutely. I find most people are quite forgiving as long as they know what you're yeah. trying to say. You know, it's not, it's not, oh no, I'm going to end up offending everyone. And what I found was that despite perhaps some of the cliches that I'd wrongly taken on board, Belfast is a city that can really laugh at itself on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just found it such a powerful experience. Probably one of the most profound experiences I'd had doing live comedy was Belfast um I mean some people took some offense but that would happen anywhere but um I was really it, it kind of restored my faith in people I suppose oh that's really lovely to hear and I and I agree I mean humor here is 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 famed for being you know really really dark and <laughs> and I suppose because we came through um what we came through and and um and and you know a variety of other reasons so yeah I mean there are people who I suppose it's a little bit more forgiving because you're external, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what grossly offensive thing you said, you know, but, but people and most people don't expect, you know, if I go to small countries and regions, I didn't, I didn't go past the first page of Wikipedia, you know, I don't expect them to have encyclopedic knowledge of, of the complexities or the, the integrity of our quarrel as we, as, as it's been put about Northern Ireland. So I think people give maybe suppose more latitude to somebody who we can't, we can't expect you to know any better but for example when during the Brexit debate Pretty Patel talked about why don't we starve the Irish out basically why don't we cut off their food supply yeah. wouldn't that be a good way to get the answer on Brexit that is I suppose it, it, it dredges things up but yeah no people people here are good crack and forget plus we take tourism as a personal compliment because we didn't have <laughs> it for long people are like my husband's from Dublin and he's lived here for you know way over 15 years but people are still like what brings you here <laughs> you know why would you possibly have decided to settle in Belfast and, and I find that you know friends who've come from anywhere else say that in general people go out of their way to 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 let them know how happy they are that they're here and, and yeah I loved it I mean at the, at the not the last time I was there but the, the second to last time I was there was when there was a huge storm and basically all flights got grounded so I had to stay an extra day. And I thought, well, I'll go to the Titanic Museum. But literally the whole of Belfast was closing down. The cinemas were closing. The, everything was closed. So I just sat in a hotel bar and uh, got drunk. But like, everyone, it, I mean, it's one of the friendliest experiences of my life. It was amazing. I'm so delighted to hear that. And it is, I mean, I, I kind of, um, of, of just over the years, people have, you know, friends who've come from, or in, before before I was in politics, every job I had was kind of line managed in London. So you had, you had, colleagues over and bits and pieces and I think most people do and I suppose we are we are trading from very low expectations everybody expects it to be all the grim caricatures that they've heard of you know everybody wanting to pick a fight with you and and as I say um particularly in terms of nightlife it's 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 excellent it's friendly it's it's an easy city to get around as well and um yeah, no, it really, it has a lot going for it, but it hasn't had leadership, it's fair to say. Yes. Um, and I think it could be doing so much better. I mean, when you think of all the potential gains that we had 
in the 20 years after the agreement, there was so much investment. Europe pumped money into Northern Ireland. Uh, the US did. And there was kind of a real attempt to um, build the economy. Because as John Hume always said, the, the greatest peace process is a job. You know, if you've got something to get yes. up for. And and, and, um, and we didn't, we, we, we've never actually enjoyed good governance in, in the century that Northern Ireland has existed. And we certainly haven't in the last. So we haven't made, we haven't made the best of ourselves, shall we say. But we're kind of united in our disappointment with that. <laughs> you've you've been at you know you've had sort of stark reminders, I suppose, of of, of the politics of, of Belfast and Northern Ireland, and of you know the importance of symbols and things in 2013 when uh, the vote on the council was to to fly the Union Jack only on designated days rather than every day. You had people shooting at your house. I mean, firstly, that must have been immensely scary. But secondly, in the seven years since then have things improved yeah the flag protest was a really i mean it kind of it, it was quite shocking for everybody here as, as you, you've just put it that, that, that there was a vote to kind of the the union jack used to fly 365 over um the city hall and there was a proposal to fly it just like it does in over buckingham palace on, on designated days and there was a really there was a real um uh blowback to that and and, and you're right i was chairing the the policing partnership on the council at the time and yeah I did uh, had my windows put in and yeah it was it was very it was very frightening and um as as many politicians have had over the years here um, I think it just again it it showed how live identity issues are and how much they're manipulated you know that people are told yes. that their whole life is is tied up in a set of colors I find that kind of sad in a lot of ways yeah. actually at the time and I was on Belfast City Council when that was going through and, and we were saying yes I mean the kind of green orange which flag you fly blah 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 is, is an issue but actually it was about a broader representation of all of the different strands of opinion because it wasn't just that there was only unionism represented in City Hall there was nothing about trade unions there was nothing about the LGBT community there were very few women being represented in, in the kind of history of the city but yeah, I mean, it, it 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 brought the city to a standstill for about five weeks. There were street protests, you know, bars and stuff were 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 you know a lot of them went to the wall, um, because people couldn't get in and out. Roads were blocked, all that kind of stuff, and and it really it, it injected a, a real dose of poison into the politics. But it did, and and there were manipulators in that, but. It, it it underlines for so many people if if the other things in your life aren't going well um and as your prospects and and your your attachment to the world around you then it's easy and i suppose brexit's another example of that and again i'm caricaturing like you said we, we probably shouldn't but it's easy to kind of sell people an idea based on you know very flaky notions of sovereignty and identity and and and, and the past and all that kind of stuff and, and we had a we had i suppose a, a prequel of that in the flags protest in 2013 i think with flags there is something else particularly in the the the, the sort of british irish relationship where if you're not careful and obviously countries have flags and it's okay to like your own country's flag and national anthem like that's, that's fairly normal but when it's in a place like that it can be misused perhaps as a symbol of dominance or ownership and I think that's where that's where it's really controversial yeah I mean I I will be honest and say if I didn't see another flag for the rest of my life I would be very very happy I just have I, I don't I don't have a great well actually I'll, I'll, I don't as I say nationalism isn't a thing that really moves me in general but as you say here you kind of do have to be a little bit more sensitive we have a row every summer and you know whenever you go 
oh, the nights are getting longer. And I was able to like knock out with a coat here. We go, oh, the flags are going up on the lamppost. That's how you know summer's coming. And particularly in the mixed neighborhood where I live, it, it's an issue every year. And I do, you know, and it, I try not to kind of get into the arm, but I've spoken to people who put them up and genuinely to them, they're like, it's just something we've always done. And, and a lot of them, a lot of them are doing it to mark territory and to intimidate. But some people, as you say, it's just their attachment. But here, all of those symbols of identity have so much baggage for all of us here. Um, and I suppose, yeah, it is. It's about it's about being aware of that 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 community and that identification of community that you have isn't necessarily the same for your next door neighbour. The first time, though, and not the first time, but I've really found nationalism as a benign tool in coronavirus. I found that kind of, um, and, and I mean, around that, you know, it started when Italy was, you know, or they were singing the national anthem out and, and they yeah. were kind of traditional Italian music and all that kind of stuff whenever they were in lockdown. And it's happened here as well. I mean, um, Ireland has played it really, really well in terms of, you know, putting on the green jersey, basically, and, and talking about, you know, Irish medics around the world coming home. And they have done a really good job of kind of um, civic civic national identity and, and giving people, you know, that it, it's, it's all this imagined communities theory, but we're pulling together for you know that imagined community is really real the things that you're doing in your street and in your neighborhood are protecting the health service for everybody in the whole country and I suppose that was a tool we didn't really have as readily here in Northern Ireland because ultimately and there should be and and the kind of to me the Good Friday Agreement is the kind of sovereign document but there isn't that same sense of purpose unfortunately here. And Esther when it comes into margin season I sort of feel bad about even asking about it but um, are they as popular as they used to be? Or, or are no. less people taking part in this stuff now? No, they aren't as popular. And again, um, no, they're, they're definitely not. There are still lots of them. And it's worth saying that 90-something percent of marches um you know, go off without anybody, you know, people might be like, oh, I'm stuck in the car waiting for this to go past or whatever, but they're not, nobody objects to them. They're not restricted in any way. And there are a few that would be um, flashpoint, but I suppose it's, 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 it's dwindling as a pursuit, like a lot of, I suppose like church going, maybe, you know, it's kind of was more meaningful to people in, in the past. Again, though, um, there are a mixture of people that are out to kind of go, and there are people who just like, it's a big annual day out. It's like, you know, Mardi Gras or or the Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah, it's like Carnival. And it's like, and and there's that fun of performance and and like there's kind of flute bands that would practice all year round. And it's, it's, it's a big day and and it's, it's actually really benign. So again, that's something I always try to, um, I try to 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 kind of explain to people and and that it's not something um that I would ever seek to ban. I think again you kind of you know there are some where there's 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 contentious aspects or it's you know going into a neighborhood where it's wholly unwelcome. Um but again those of us who aspire to Irish unity have to be clear that all identities including very much you know a million a million of my neighbors here identify as British and, and it needs to be very very clear that in the United Ireland that their you know traditions and aspirations will be respected. Just to bring it back to to the assembly and to the executive and Stormont for a while um there's one SDLP member on the executive uh, Nicola mm-hmm. Mallon who holds the infrastructure mm-hmm. brief uh, sometimes it can Sometimes it can just appear that it's just two parties, you know, that it's whoever the biggest, okay. whoever the biggest unions parties, but the other parties, the UUP have a seat there as well, and, and the Alliance Party. Binding in smaller parties as well seems like a sensible thing to do. But when you've got one seat in the executive, 
the politics of that are quite different to being one of the two major players because you're only you're in but a little bit. So you're kind of bound by a certain amount of collective responsibility, but you're kind of you're simultaneously inside and outside. Is that fair? You've 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 hit the nail on the head, and that is, and it was a real. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a slam dunk decision. So in 2016, um, we the you know the smaller parties ourselves, Alliance and the Ulster Unionists, all left government partly over this. Um, or have we had have we did we know about the renewable heat incentive? But anyway, there was a couple of scandals going. There's like an alphabet soup of the yes. SIF, investment fund, and so on, and basically just terrible governments governance atrocious lack of transparency again no um no set out goal of what it was trying to do and really poor communication that the smaller parties kind of came to an executive meeting it was quite clear all the business had been transacted beforehand by the special yeah. advisors two parties and basically anything that was difficult or contentious kind of got sucked into the first minister's office and, and disappeared and just we just didn't make hard decisions we're like oh, i'm gonna put that in the pile of stuff that's too difficult and it all built up and you know we all felt that we were doing um or the communities we represent a service by trying to create an opposition and trying to create some normalcy or whatever and we were we, we were told at the time that um that everything was fine so fast forward eight months and the government collapsed so you can you can say we were a super effective opposition that the government <laughs> didn't last eight uh didn't last eight uh months or you know it, it was a, it was a failing of the government so we, we all of the smaller parties really wrestled with the decision in december whether to go back clearly the public mood was get it together work mm. together you know there are there are things that are more important but um we will be sleeping with one eye open and again as you say we've gone straight from kind of, you know, embryonic first few weeks, hadn't even done a programme for government into this coronavirus epidemic. So you, everybody has to park their egos in that way. But it's 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 really important that the bigger parties kind of respect the fact that the smaller parties have, um, you know, a view, an electorate and, and you know, should be treated um, uh, properly and, and transparently. And again, I've said the phrase, time will tell, um, you know, it isn't, there's no genetic reason that we can't do good governance. Yes, it is an artificial construct. Northern Ireland is always going to be, you know, it's not, it's not normal as such, but there's, if, if people, if people do power sharing because it's the right thing to do and not just because the law tells them to, if they actually meaningfully want to work the common ground and, and kind of share responsibility and share opportunity, then it, it can work and we, we will find out in time if it will. We talked about mixed messages earlier and how confusing it must be to have an Irish government doing one thing, a UK government and and the Assembly doing things, whether it's closing schools at different times or locking down before or after each other. Just in terms of the economics of the different packages that both governments are, are, are delivering, um, with the job retention scheme that Rishi Sunak has announced and paying 80% of uh, furloughed staff's wages up to £30,000, £35,000 a year, are there radical differences between the Irish model and the and the UK model? No, there aren't actually. I mean, in terms of and and again, Dublin acted fairly quickly in in the, the pandemic payment, uh, as they call it, and and it was sort of like a and well, it's slightly different in that if you if you lose your job and if you don't if you don't 
fallen into the furlough scheme or the self-employed scheme and you just you lose your job then the access to universal credit in the UK and obviously that includes Northern Ireland is is crap and it, it, it takes ages so the, the provision is better um, in the Republic in that regard but no I think at the moment in terms of the kind of helicopter money ideas or whatever and the kind of quick cash injections they are broadly the same excuse me the economic responses some of the the challenges for us here are some of the supplementary programs because obviously each devolved region was given a pot and ours was I think just shy of a billion and it's been spent differently in different ways and for example every business in England has a year of uh, free rates so we don't have that so here they're getting two or three months and businesses are obviously going what so a comparable shop in, uh, in in London has no rates to pay. And there are other differences. I mean, the big, the kind of cash grants um, for retail and hospitality haven't been paid for the larger groups yet. People are going to be waiting 50 days for those. So th- th- those are where the differences become more acute because a lot of, I mean, loads of people contacting my office are people who are like, wait, hang on, somebody owns a shop in, in Manchester and, and, and it's radically different for them. But no, at, at the moment, um, at the moment, the economic packages to me are broadly the same. Some of it, again, where we start to diverge is is the extent to which, um, you know, obviously Ireland is able to, as a continuing member, access the recovery strategies and the recovery packages um, from uh, the EU, which, of course, we uh, the UK have kind of cut their nose off uh, on. But at, but at the moment, they're 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 in the same they're in the same vein. Because you do wonder, you know, whenever you get an, differing economic packages on, on, on different sides of borders, particularly on, on islands, so, you know, whether it's Scotland, England, Wales, or, or Northern Ireland and, and, and the Republic of Ireland, you know, different tax rates might drive people to relocate their businesses in different places or or, or whatever. And I just wondered if, if there are any uh, differences, perhaps, in the way that the two... Uh, areas handle coronavirus and, and not just public health but in terms of the economy as well that, that might actually create social change whether people might be more likely to relocate on either side of the border well funny i mean so i mean there's a specific issue um that i won't claim that i've chapter and verse on about as i say frontier workers people who work on one side and live on the other side and they are some one of the categories of people that have fallen through um the cracks but no at the moment it's the same but actually you've you've hit on where the challenges are really going to happen because um in the recovery phase and whether that is weeks or months before we can start to ease some of these restrictions even temporarily but um as I say, Ireland, and it, it it hasn't done it perfectly, but it got in fast on um, testing and tracing, and it is doing, you know, many, many times. I think it's top of the league tables behind only South Korea in, in, in countries doing testing well, and they have got the army in, they've got librarians in, they've got everybody to do this contact tracing. So basically, if you test positive, we go, right, Matt, where have you been for the last, you know, all the things that you've done for the last two weeks and contacting those people. And it is, it's it's the only way we're going to be able to, to, to return to some sort of normality pre a vaccine is is that testing and, tra- and tracing and the uk just aren't buying into that so th- that is where i'm really worried about how and i said about the arguments we had on the way in will you know multiply on the way out if if um there's a a move to lift restrictions more quickly in london for in, in britain for economic reasons and we're not ready to do that if you had a scenario where 
you know, lockdown was still tight on one side of the border and not, it would be chaotic. And and yes, I think people are kind of, a lot of people are tuning in to what Dublin are doing and following their public health messages because they just are more precautionary. It's going to be problematic. Um, and if we, if we are in a position in Northern Ireland to... Um, uh, you know, if if basically if we have a different strategy, London still holds the purse string. So, for example, if we were in a position where we did still have to do lockdown and they cancel the furlough scheme, you know, a lot of businesses here are kind of screwed. So it's one of the many times when not having all the financial levers um, becomes a problem, especially for social democrats like myself. It's very difficult to practice your uh, practice your ideology when basically you just get pocket money and you've got to kind of do your best with it. Well, there's so much more we could have talked about. I think I could have done an hour on frontier work. It sounds just one of those fascinating things that gets doesn't get lost, obviously, for the people experiencing it, but it's, it's not one of the big headlines. And those areas that really affect people's lives, there's really interesting elements of change that, you know, where, yeah. where public health and, and economics can drive huge personal change for people. But um, And who, who saw that coming? I remember before that I talked about, you know, the, the challenges of the next century didn't know borders. And I was thinking about climate change. I was thinking about tax. I was not thinking about a bug. You know, it just, it, it came kind of out of nowhere for most of us, didn't it? Uh, and it is going to be an enormous driver of change. Claire, thank you so much for giving me your time. I've kept you for ages. Um, thank you. There you go, Claire Hanna from the SDLP. What a fantastic conversation that was. You know, it's so stimulating making this podcast. I always feel so energised afterwards. I feel, and I've said this before, almost like I've been to the, to, to the best university presentation or lecture that you could have been to. Not that it was a lecture, but just in terms of the information you're getting from people in positions of power and influence whose job, whose livelihood, whose life is dedicated to solving these problems. I'd find it endlessly fascinating. And just, I just feel so much more awake at the end of a conversation like that than I did at the start. And I'm sure some of you will feel the same way as well. Just hearing people who know what they're on about talk about stuff, I genuinely think is the most exciting thing. And I say that as someone who loves football and music and comedy. And, you know, I think there is just something so basically profound about someone who can talk well about an experience or about an idea and just wanting to ask them every question you can think of about it. There's just something completely engaging about it. And that was just, after that interview, I mean, like literally just now, I finished recording the interview. Oh man, I just felt, it's like, it's like that glow you get after exercise. You just think, I'm more, to, I'm more switched on now. And after an hour, of talking to Claire, I'm better informed. I just love it. And I I, I thank all of you for, for the emails that you that you send, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com, and for the glowing iTunes review I've strong-armed you into leaving. Um, and if you haven't done that, you know, do us a favour. You've got uh, hopefully a bit of uh, extra spare time in your hands these days, so uh, it shouldn't take you too long. Uh, and the emails are brilliant. It's always lovely to know your thoughts on particular guests, had a great reaction to the Mike Katz episode, and just as a small thing, to know where people listen. And it's not even about whether it's more exotic or glamorous. Uh, But James Fallows has got in touch, and he listens, brace yourself for this, in a yurt in his back garden. Now, until about a year ago, I didn't know what a yurt was. It's basically a really big, massive, posh tent, the sort of thing that people glamp in in Glastonbury. He sent me pictures of it. 
I mean, it's incredible. What a way. I don't know whether he's erected this just during the crisis. But that, I mean, that is working from home in style. Basically working. In a, he's got everything in there. He's got a power supply. He's got radiators, a laptop. What a great way. Basically, he's built a den. Uh, so if you've built a den and are listening in it, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I've got some great guests lined up. Um in the coming days and weeks. So thank you for downloading this, uh, first of all. Thank you to those of you that have left iTunes reviews. And just, if you can, spread the word. Let your friends know. Share it on your social media. Um, burn it to a CD. Post it to someone. Um, and thank you. And stay well. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. I hope wherever this finds you that listening to it helps in some way and that you are well. Um, and I will see you soon. Ta-ra. 